Welcome back to another episode of the Bonafide Basketball Podcast. I am your host, Chris Cottrell, and I have more than 10 years of NCAA Division I and Division II men's basketball coaching experience with contacts and relationships across the country and across all levels. I'm here today to provide news, analysis, and unprecedented insight into NCAA Division II men's basketball. The purpose of the Bonafide Basketball Podcast is to promote popularize and celebrate the incredible men's basketball teams, players, and coaches at the NCAA Division II level. This is the men's basketball content you are not getting on ESPN. Good morning and happy Halloween. Welcome to episode six of the Bonafide Basketball Podcast. Bonus content coming to you this weekend featuring Coach Eric Olin from the University of California, San Diego. Coach Olin and his program are making the transition to uh, NCAA Division I after a terrific uh, season last year. Uh, They will be participating in the Big West Conference uh, this season coming up. So we're going to get to that episode a little bit later this weekend. But today's guest is Ben Howlett, coach of the preseason number four ranked team in the country, West Liberty University. Let's get right to Division II men's basketball. In addition to announcements uh, from around the nation, the NCAA has been publishing a social series hosted by Andy Katz. Two weeks ago, Andy Katz hosted a roundtable that included Brian Hainline, the NCAA's uh, chief medical officer, Craig Robinson, the executive director of the NABC, as well as Danielle Donahue, the executive director of the Women's Basketball Coaches Association. Some key takeaways that I had from the Social Series Roundtable included a quote from Brian Hainline, and he said, playing a competitive season is up to the athletes. He's referencing, of course, that the athletes are the ones responsible to follow the proper protocols, proper mitigation habits, proper safety measures. And that's a nice thought as the NCAA gives the go ahead to compete, which they have. And the NCAA provides the opportunity and provides the you know, protocols that the Power Five conferences can adhere to, that Division One conferences can adhere to. But they have to make money on the NCAA tournament. There has to be men's basketball at the Division One level, um, you know, so they can make $1.1 billion later this year or into next year. It seems they want to get that done. They want to allow and, and they want to put protocols in place for student athletes to compete at the Division One level. So what are they doing for the student athletes at the Division Two level, men's basketball or Division Three men's basketball players? Because, again, it's up to the student-athletes to ensure that they have a season. The social series also mentioned uh, an interesting tidbit, like high-major football programs right now. And they've done a really good job. We haven't heard about very many cases, a few high-profile cases. But for the most part, it seems like we're playing a lot of games with with minimal cases. And many high-major football programs are experimenting right now with a GPS tracking device, a monitor that's worn by players Uh, participating in each competition and this uh, in the event a player tests positive the data in these monitors can be used by both teams to determine which players 
came into direct contact with uh, the infected student-athlete during the competition. So I guess if you can afford the three tests per player per week, per coaching staff member, per player personnel member, then I guess you can afford the GPS chips to monitor close contact uh, throughout competition. According to Craig Robinson, executive director of the NABC, everyone's goal is to get the season in. And according to Danielle Donahue, the executive director of the Women's Basketball Coaches Association, the student-athlete's experience is so important to all of us. So whose goal, Craig, and which student-athlete's experience? Because what is the NCAA doing? How are we... How are we providing an experience? How are we providing a season for you know the student athletes that aren't at the Division One level that can't afford that you know can't acquire whose programs and institutions can't afford can't acquire the required testing materials? Is there anything in place by the NCAA to help those student athletes have a season to have an experience? Let's be honest. You know there are approximately you know, 845 men's basketball players in the Power Five conferences. And those players stand to make the NCAA the most money through the billions of dollars in NCAA tournament TV revenue. What is the NCAA doing with the approximate 13,000 men's basketball student athletes at Division II, Division Three levels? That number, 13,000 men's basketball student-athletes at Division II, Division III, that number comes directly from a 2018-2019 NCAA Sports Sponsorships and Participation Rates report. What about the Division III student-athletes who have already canceled their seasons? They have no season coming up. There are Division II institutions who have canceled winter sports. What do those men's basketball players have to look back on and say the NCAA did this for us or helped us, provided us support to go through this. Because the NCAA and that social series, we're using words like experience, support, equitable, mental health. Does that apply to all three divisions? Are they providing support, experience, equitable opportunity, mental health support to all three divisions? What are we do? What's the NCAA doing at the other levels? Because it's it's apparent that they're going to play the, the the March Madness. That we're going to play the NCAA tournament at the Division One level. But if the NCAA truly wants to support the student athlete experience, doesn't that apply to all levels? The social series did talk about what we can expect when we do have competition. We can expect to see coaches wearing masks, players on the bench, socially distanced. Officials have been experimenting with a masked whistle, preventing a spray. And that's all good news. We're, we're being safe. We're providing an opportunity. For who? Division One, Division Two, II, Division Three. There is good news, though, on the Division Two front. There is one region out of the eight in Division Two men's basketball that has all of its leagues scheduled to begin competition this season. 
Announcement was made by the Peach Belt Conference in the Southeast region to begin a 16-game league schedule in January 21. The Southeast region becomes the first region in NCAA Division II basketball to slate a season of competition. South Atlantic Conference beginning in November. Conference Carolinas and the Peach Belt both scheduled to start in January 2021. So we have one region with all leagues, conferences committed to play, committed to compete. Obviously, there's a lot of factors at play as long as everyone stays healthy. But we have good news from the Southeast region. Teams are looking forward to beginning practices and competition as soon as November and into January 21. Big announcement. Very exciting for Division II basketball, arguably one of the best regions, one of the strongest regions in the country, and they're returning to action. Awesome news. More good news, when you look around the country at the preseason top 20 released by Basketball Times last week, there are some programs that have had unprecedented success in the past and will continue to do so going forward. We're joined today by Coach Ben Howlett from West Liberty University. Finished last year 27-4. They're a Mountain East Conference regular season and tournament champions. So I'd like to welcome uh, to this episode of the Bonafide Basketball Podcast, Coach Ben Howlett from West, uh, West Liberty. And Coach, it's, you know, it's been a while since we've caught up. We've known each other going back to my days at Davis and Elkins and uh, we had a lot of conversations about scheduling and I am confident that some of the best decisions I made were not playing you guys while I was at Davis and Elkins. Yeah, those were, those were good times. It seems like a long time ago now. Um, and obviously I was in a, in a different role back then as the assistant coach, but always enjoyed playing you and catching up with you um, during the yeah, season. Yeah, Ben, I appreciate you coming on and, and uh, really excited to talk about, some of the different experiences you've had going into your fourth year now, uh, you've, you, you've done an incredible job taking over for Coach Crutchfield. Uh, you took over in uh, 2017, 2018. You've won three straight regular season championships. You've had uh, three straight uh, seasons of 25-plus wins. What kind of ride has it been for you uh, to be at your alma mater and leading the men's basketball team? It's been an enjoyable three years, and obviously the winning kind of helps that, but but just being around the type of, of players that we've had in our program those three years, and, you know, I, my first year I got to spend time with guys that were in the program for five years, so I really got to know them, and, you know, the transition from being an assistant coach to head coach sometimes is a little tough, you know, especially with those players that you've had relationships when you were the assistant coach, but those guys were great, and you know, we, we've, you know, gone against the grain a little bit, I guess you could say, with bringing in, you know, some, some one-year transfers. And those guys have just been, you know, phenomenal. And I still talk to those guys, you know, weekly. So it's it's been a, a very enjoyable three years thus far and really looking forward to this upcoming year. Absolutely. Absolutely. Take – so if you would, at West Liberty, you know, you were there for, I think, six years as an assistant. You had played there, played for Coach Crutchfield. Take us back to the process by which you became – the head coach, uh, you know, go back to that first day. What was that like? How, how did the transition go for you and for coach Crutchfield? Yeah. So I, I've always, I always told coach, you know, when I was his assistant coach, obviously we got to spend a lot of time together and I always, 
I never wanted this job. Like I always, I didn't want to follow someone so successful. And I always wanted to go to a program and, and get my first head coaching job at a school that was, you know, trying to build something rather than go somewhere where it's already been built. And, you know, I told him for, for all those years, I really, I don't want to be the head coach at West Liberty, but you know, when coach decided to take another job um, down South and, you know, at 30 years old, they say, here's the keys to the Corvette. Do you want it? I, I would be dumb. Not Absolutely. To and um, so I, I just said, heck yeah, I'll do this. And um, I literally put every minute of my life into this program from, you know, player relationships to recruiting to, to talking to other coaches. And um, it, it was a very stressful time at first, but also very enjoyable um, time as well. And you were around Coach Crutchfield for, for, for six years as an assistant and then previously as, as a player. What's some of the best advice you got from him going forward to take this job? You know, what did you learn from him as a player and as an assistant? How did your relationship evolve? I mean, that, that's one of the cooler parts of, of Division Two, and especially when you stick around as a coach, seeing that relationship evolve. How was that for you and Coach Crutchfield? Yeah, so he – I will say he, he never really gave me like any specific advice like when I got the job. But obviously, like I said before, we got to spend a lot of time together, you know, whether it was recruiting or talking before practice. And, you know, one of the things that coach always told me was, you know, do what you think is right. Just don't do things because you see other coaches doing it a certain way or you see other teams doing things a certain way. Do what you think is right for your team. And I think every team is different and every team has, you know, different skill sets and, and they have, you know, some guys are able to do things other guys can't, but you have to do what is right for your team. And I think, you know, that's something that I, that I take in to this job every day, you know, every day when I sit down and, and, you know, do our practice plan, I think, what could we possibly do today that could help us, you know, come season time. So that, that's the biggest thing that, you know, I took from coach Crutchfield and, you know, it's something that I'll take with me, you know, every step of the way in this coaching field. That's awesome. That's awesome. And, uh, and you had a lot of, you had a lot of responsibility as the assistant coach too. talk about the transition, you know, from assistant coach to head coach, how did that change for you with the players, the relationships, but also some of the day to day, you know, we've talked about, talked to some other coaches, like the day to day activities. When you're the head coach, man, there's a ton on your plate. Yeah. So when I, I got hired as the assistant coach at the age of, I think 23 and coach Crutchfield actually just said, you know, you're going to be in charge of a lot of things outside of actual coaching. So he let me recruit, you know, kind of be the lead recruiter at the age of 23, which, you know, I think any coach would say you're only as good as your players. So obviously it, it was my job to make sure that, that I brought him the best players that I could possibly find. And, you know, also I took care of everything else, outside of of the actual games as far as food to travel to the gear you know as an assistant coach at the division two level you're kind of you're doing things that aren't seen you know within the public eye so when I got promoted to head coach um, I kind of kept that same formula although I'm a little bit more of a control freak than <laughs> it was um, so I still have my hands in a lot of the things that I did as the assistant coach but you know, obviously the, the, the biggest change was guys had to see me as the head coach now rather than the assistant coach. So I think 
one of the main responsibilities as an assistant coach is, yeah, you're their coach, but you're also kind of there for them if they need something, you know, as a friend. And I was that guy for them, but now I've got to be the bad cop. I've got to go as the head coach and, and sometimes be the bad cop and, you know, lay in the guys or, or really try to push guys in practice. So I think that was the biggest adjustment for me going from assistant coach to the head coach. Gotcha. And that makes sense. You know, I think that's something that, uh, that everyone goes through is even when you get your first head coaching job, you know, it's hard, it's hard to make that transition. And, uh, and whatever, you know, whatever coach Crutchfield taught you, it's obviously been working, right? And uh, whatever you, your beliefs are for your program, they've been working. You've had a lot of success in three years. But no matter what you learned, uh, I don't think there's anything that could prepare, you know, your program or any program right now around the country for what we're going through with coronavirus. And uh, at the end of, end of your third season, you're the number two seed in the Atlantic region. Uh, you, you are preparing for the NCAA tournament for the third year in a row. You know, where were you when you got word and how did you get word that the season had been canceled? So we were lucky enough to to host um, at least two games in, in the Atlantic region here at West Liberty. So we were we, we had just finished practice and we were up in my office talking and I had a good friend of mine in my office who also was done practicing for the day and joined Osborne at the University of Charleston and Mercy Hearst at the time was practicing and so we were kind of you know up here as a couple other coaches and myself in my office you know talking then coach Manchow at Mercyhurst came up in the office and said they've shut it down and you know he said my AD just kind of told me they shut it down and then about two minutes later um Reed Amos who's who's the, the commissioner of the MEC and was also you know here's the site rep for the NCAA tournament came in and broke the news to us um so it was it was an unbelievably tough pill to swallow just because I thought at the time we were playing at an extremely high level and everyone on our team was healthy. I just felt like we played the best three games of the season in the conference tournament and it was a tough pill to swallow, but it just didn't affect us. It affected everybody in the country. So I guess it is what it is. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a tough pill to swallow. How the conversations go with your players when when you get around to getting uh, getting your team together? What was that like with the conversation with you guys? Yeah, so luckily for me, um, I probably had it the easiest because I didn't have a senior on my roster, so I didn't have to to tell the team that you know so and so this was your last college basketball game because. I didn't have I didn't have a senior on the team. So that was, you know, I guess if there was a positive anything, which I always try to look for positive, that was a positive to me. But still, and obviously our guys got word because of social media before I told them. Right. <laughs> um, but you could just see it, you know, the, it, it was it was it was an awful it was an awful feeling just because they our guys knew that we were playing pretty well. And our guys were I'm telling you they were dialed in for, you know, Virginia State and, and we were I felt like we had a good game plan. We just had a great practice that day where, you know, at that time of the year for a practice to get chippy as a coach, that's what you kind of want. And practices were still very intense and guys were, were dialed in. So it was a tough pill to swallow for, for our team as well. And, and you said, you know, a big part of the postseason is, is what happens after, you know, after spring break, after the NCAA tournament, you know, you're kind of preparing for next season. 
did you lose your players off of campus at West Liberty? Did they go home? Uh, what, how long, what was the time span like between the end of your season and, and your players kind of going home? A lot of coaches I've talked to, you know, they're right and they're in the middle of spring break in some institutions and, and their, their season's canceled. The campus gets shut, shut down for coronavirus and kids are going home. What was that timeline like for you at West Lib? Yeah. So, it was spring break here as well. So when obviously the, the, the NCAA tournament got canceled, we went out to you know have a, have a team meal. And then after the team meal, the majority of our guys went home because they're within a two to three hour radius of West Liberty. And, you know, the next day, the rest of the team went home and they were home until I saw them here in August for the first day of school. So I actually did not see them, um, Besides, you know, Zoom calls, I did not see the team from the day the NCAA tournament was canceled till August 24th or whenever the first day of school was here this year. Wow, that's a long time. And Zoom is tough. You know, Zoom. A lot of a lot of coaches are adapting and recruits go, is going on Zoom now, and relationships are being built on Zoom. But that's a tough. That's a tough task. Uh, again, made easier as you mentioned by not having any seniors. You know, able to get you guys aligned going forward to next year. And how's the response been at West Liberty so far for your student athletes, for your campus? How's everyone doing at West Lib? Everyone's been fine. We've, we've been testing, um, you know, weekly. They, they test, you know, a certain percentage of the athletes weekly. Um, everyone in the school, including the employees, got tested the first day of school. Um, so the response here has been great. West Liberty has done just a, a great job handling um, the pandemic. And um, I know whatever, whatever is needed to be done, West Liberty will take care of it for us. That's awesome. That's, that's encouraging to hear because, you know, I want to, I want to go to something that we broke here last week on the podcast, the Mountain East conference announced, you know, nine days ago, they were suspending all winter sports until the spring semester, 2021. So the Mountain East conference is not alone that they're doing this but they're the first conference to mention the difficulties, um, you know, the difficulty they're having and the institutions might be having acquiring the needed volume of testing supplies to meet the NCAA's testing obligations. Once the season starts, you know, have there been any updates to that decision? You know, what are you hearing from around the league? I mean, is that something that's happening that a lot of institutions are facing outside of West Liberty? Yeah, I, I think that's, you know, when the MEC put the statement out um, and when that quote was made, that's probably happening at every division two conference, um, or I should say the majority of them, you know, with being able to acquire the testing um, materials that you need. So that that's happening, I would say throughout the country, NCAA division two and probably division three as well. Um, so obviously until we heard word that we weren't going to play in January, we had to prepare like we were playing in November because we didn't hear anything until last week. So, you know, our practices until that time were, they were really intense, but obviously I think you have to be a little bit careful with what you, cause you know, essentially we're not playing until January. If we practice every day, like we have been until January, we're going to kill each other. Right. It, it right. just, it wouldn't be smart for, for us as coaches to do that. So we've dialed it down a little bit, but I still want, you know, practices 
and I want our guys to, to, to be in the right frame of mind. So when January does come around, we're ready to play. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a, that's a hard pill to swallow uh, when your season's cut short. It's a hard pill to swallow when you're told your season's going to start late. It's definitely, you know, I think coaches are trying all over the country trying to figure out what's best for their program, and everyone's doing it differently. But, but I want to transition from COVID-19 because we could talk about that all day. I'd, ra- I'd rather talk hoop. And, uh, and I want to I try and jog your memory real quick to 2016. Um, game, a Final Four game in Frisco, Texas. You're an assistant for Coach Crutchfield. And, and I'm watching. I'm out of coaching this year. And I'm watching on my laptop. I'm watching Lincoln Memorial uh, go against West Liberty. And, and, and Lincoln wins in this Final Four game, 103, 102. Both teams combined for 53% from the field, 50% from three. Combined made 24 three-pointers. Uh, nine players on both sides are in double, double digits. Seager Bonifat, who is the player of the year, he went, he went for 44. I mean, th- if there's a game that, that has to be broadcast to get the general public to understand how freaking good Division II basketball is, like that's the game. I mean, you're talking about two teams that, number one, both teams guard. And both teams were just so gifted offensively. You know, take take the listeners back to that game. You know, obviously a difficult memory for you, but the level of competition in that game. I'm I'm, I'm on the outside watching. Talk about that for the listeners and and for the people that really care about Division II basketball. Those are two top programs. Yeah, so that that game was unique because there was so much on the line. You know, whoever won that game was going to get to the national championship game. And then the other part of that was the the talent level in that game as far as individual players was through the roof. So if you just look at our roster, you know, obviously Seeger was the national player of the year that year. And, you know, on that team we also had David Dennis who was here for two years, and then he went down and transferred when, when Coach took the job at Nova Southeastern. He went down there and was an All-American, you know, first-team All-American. And also on our team, we had Devin Hearn, who I think he was an All-American on a couple different you know, All-American lists. And then we also had Bo Justice, who was a freshman that year, who was, you know, a, a star when he transferred to Valdosta State and was an All-American. And that's just for our team. Right. So we had, you know, four – pretty much all Americans on our team. And then you look at Lincoln Memorial, who the, the, the gentleman that, that really gave us problems, Jarrell Simmons, I believe yeah. was his name. Um, he was, he was a stud. He could really play. And, and then big Emmanuel Terry, I yep. believe who's, I know he was flirting around in the G league for a while. Um, and then Jalen Steele, I believe. I, I still remember these names. Those three guys. Uh, Luke Juan. Really, yeah. Oh yeah, my God! Yeah, Lucon Choice and, and 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 yeah, Lucon Choice. Yep. Yeah, he was. There was just the level of talent in that game was was through the roof. And I remember I was sitting. Obviously, I was in the second chair then, and, and sitting next to our other assistant coach, Coach Aaron Huffman. And Seager was just like in one of those zones where it was just like get the ball to Seager, and then everyone else get out of his way. And that's that's honestly what he said let's just get the ball to Seager and then get out of his way it was one of those type of performances and it went down to the wire that's what made it fun was like every possession mattered 
um, until the very last shot. Like we got a shot off. If I remember, David Dennis got right one off, the, didn't he? Right, at, well, almost a three, right, like yeah. right inside half court. It was a good look too. Right, right, and it, it was it was semi close, but you know, I hated that we had to lose. But even if we were lucky enough to win, I would have hated if Lincoln Memorial had to lose, just because I think both teams put it all in line. Like they they literally laid it all out there, and it was it was just a fun game to watch. If you were just a general basketball fan, like you were just. You didn't have a you know a team in it like watching that game, you got your money's worth right there and then some. Like that was a serious Division two college basketball game and I think has you know far as I've been as a, a head coach, that game probably sticks out to me the most. Um, that was just that was such a, a great game for you know both fan bases and, and both institutions. Yeah, it was an incredible game and uh, and, and like you said, I think that what stood out to me was. The, the level of shot making and the level of playmaking, <laughs> whoever basically whoever scored last won the game. And, and, you know, you saw that right into the last possession. And, and I want to talk about Seager Bonifant because that dude could play. You know, he has 44, <laughs> he has 44 in the national semifinal. He's back to back national terror of the year for division two. What kind of, what does that transfer for him for his uh, career? How's he doing now? going forward it's kind of funny he, he he i gotta call him back he i have two missed calls from him today so i'm gonna <laughs> call him back here this evening um but he he he's been playing overseas um for a while and then the last time i talked to him which was maybe two weeks ago he's actually trying to get in the g league now um and play in the g league so i don't know how that's going with with the whole coronavirus i, I don't i don't know you know what it looks like for him right now but he was a he was the type of guy that we said he's going to make a career out of basketball and you know whenever he decides to put down the basketball he's going to be a really good coach too Seeger Seeger's going to be a really good coach just because he, he knows basketball very well and he's able to talk and, and communicate with people so um, really close with Seeger and, and just you know the argument here is who, who's the best player to ever play here yeah. Um, you know, I usually try to stay neutral and stay out of those conversations. But, you know, if I had a vote, it would be Seager. Yeah, he could he could go, you know, in that game. I want to say I'm watching that game on my laptop, like I said, and Lincoln Memorial just had no had no answer. I mean, they had no answer for him. You know, whether you put him in a ball screen, you posted him up. I mean, the dude could play inside and out. And and yeah. Lincoln had no answer. And I, I remember talking to Coach Schertz you know, a couple of days later in between, you know, in between that game and, and before the national championship. And he just said, he said, he's the best guy that they've gone against, you know, all overall skill. Yeah, his, his skill set was incredible. Yeah. So. You know, what's funny about that was when Seager, when Seager came to West Liberty, like the only thing he could do his freshman year. And I would tell him this, if he was sitting right in front of me was shoot threes. Like that was his role. And if you look in that game, out of his 44 points, I think he only made two three-pointers. He only had two three-pointers in that game. So he evolved as a player. Like, he he, he was more than just a three-point shooter. Um, there was really nothing he couldn't do on the basketball floor. Yeah, he, he was incredible in that game. And, you know, back-to-back -back player of the year speaks for itself. Uh, national player of the year, that speaks speaks for itself. And, and you know, so next year – I think you guys go uh, twenty-eight and four. 
have a great run again. And the following season is when you take over for Coach Crutchfield. And you pick up right where Coach Crutchfield leaves off. I mean, in three years, then you're 83 and 13. You have three consecutive appearances in the NCAA tournament. And and I want to go back to that first year for you. Unfortunately, you lost in the first round. Uh, Talk about how, you know, how was that game first time as a head coach in the NCAA tournament? And then how have you grown as a coach? What did you learn from that first season, that first trip to the NCAA tournament? Yeah, I'll be honest. I really had no idea what I was doing my first year. I was just kind (laughs) of like going with the flow. I had no idea what I was doing. Um, You know, when we got matched up with, with Shippensburg, I did not like the matchup um, just because, you know, they had probably one of the, the best, the best true bigs in the country in, in Dustin Sleva. And it was a really tough matchup for us. Um, that was the one team I, 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 you know, telling our assistant coaches at the time, I don't want to get matched up with them. I think it would be a tough game for us. And, and we got it handed to us. We got it handed to us. And I've probably watched that game maybe 20 times now, legit 20 <laughs> times. And, um, you know, we, we just, we looked at it, not, not in sync there. And it was, I felt a little bit embarrassed. And I, the one time I was thinking, I wish this game would end like with two minutes left and we had no shot of winning. I'm thinking, I just want this game to get the double, double zeros and let's get out of yeah. here. Um, but I, I just, that first year, um, you know, I was a young, I was 30 years old and, and Every day was like I, I we didn't really take off days besides the, the one mandatory off day. Like our practices were were two hours and they were up tempo and they were competitive and I think I wore guys down. I, I you know towards the end of the year I think I really wore guys down because we we didn't take you know so called you know stretching days or whatever. We went to war every day and it was competitive and um, you know that's the one thing I, I've learned. Like I think you need to dial it back some during the middle of the season and I give credit to to my assistant coaches you know they they kind of sometimes I still want to you know get after it and they say we probably need to dial it down yeah. a notch we got a game here tomorrow or the next day so um, that's that's the one thing I think I've learned most you know in being a head coach yeah I think it's funny how you know uh, all of basketball has kind of uh you know we talk about load management the NBA you know all of basketball has kind of gone to the less is more sometimes especially in the long season and I think it's one thing when, you know, I, I remember my first year at Davis and Elkins, you know, we're doing the same thing two hours a day. We're going crazy. And, and you look up and you're like, is this the right thing to do? And, and, yeah. you know, so I think, I think you're right. You know, that's a big thing for head coaches to learn, especially young or new head coaches, uh, you know, to learn kind of how to manage their players, manage the season. Um, and I think that's, that's a really important aspect of leading, you know, a successful program and, and, you've had a lot of success. So you're ranked in the top 25 for all three years. Um, more incredibly, 14 of the last 15 years, you've finished ranked in the top 10 of Division II basketball. That's incredible. It's a very impressive streak. And to me, the best part of doing this podcast is not only are we shining a light on great players, teams, and coaches, but there's so many different ways that the great teams, players, and coaches do it. What's been your formula so far at West Liberty? What's What's been... Uh, what have been what have been some of the things for your sustained success at West Lib, even after you took over for Coach Crutchfield? Yeah, I, I think I'll answer this with, with two different um, ideas. Number one, we take recruiting very seriously here, and I, I think we recruit guys that 
fit into our system. That that's that's the one thing, and it, it's hard to find guys that can fit into our system both offensively and defensively. And, and it's kind of funny, like we get coaches and, and parents emails and calls all the time, like I got a shooter for you, or we got a guy that can you know really dribble. Or, I don't want just a shoot. I don't <laughs> want a guy that can just shoot. I don't want a guy that can just dribble. I, I want a guy that can do everything from. You know, score at the rim, to shoot, to defend multiple positions, that hustles, that plays hard. And on top of that, that's just fun to be around. Like, I don't want to coach someone that's not going to be any fun to be around. Like, this is how, obviously, we make our living, and I got to be around this certain person every day. I want to like them as a person. So I, that's the number one thing is recruit guys that fit in our system. And number two is our style of play. You know, there's only a handful of teams that are doing this up-tempo let's press on mates and miss and let's run a five out open motion offense and constantly putting pressure on the defense. I don't, I don't think teams, you know, they prepare for us for a couple of days, but we've been doing this for, for 15 years now. This is just something that our guys do. So it's funny. Like when our guys leave for break, like for Christmas and they go home and they go back to their high school practices or whatever. And they say their high school coach will call me and they'll say, what did you do to so-and-so? And he, he's like pressing after misses in an open gym. He's like denying guys. and He's crazy. What, that's just what we do. We, we just ingrain it. In. Like that's, we put it in their brain that this is the way we're going to play. You don't have a choice. If you don't play this way, you're not going to play here. So those are the two things, recruiting guys that fit in our system and our style of play. That's kind of been the formula for our success. Um, I'm so glad you talked about style of play because – I'm lucky, you know, I, t- I try to take some time to watch, you know, to watch, uh, watch teams on Synergy. And I, I watched you guys uh, last night and a little bit again today. You know, according to Synergy, you're averaging 96 possessions per game. You're le- you lead the country in possessions per game. O- over the last three years, you've led Division II basketball scoring over 100 points per game. And like you said, you, you play that five-out motion. And, and we'll talk defense in a second. But when I'm watching you guys offensively, I think your teams do two or three things really well. Number one, um, you know, you you guys move without the ball at an, incre- at an incredible rate. Like the speed and the persistence and the cutting is incredible. Into great spacing. And I think maybe, was, maybe I noticed it because I'm watching you guys, but, you know, your footwork on the perimeter when guys catch the basketball, your footwork is incredible. And as your guards, and you have you have multi-positional uh, players, so you're interchangeable guys. Like they drive the ball when they touch the paint. You know your footwork in the paint is incredible. I mean, I, I probably watched a hundred offensive clips. You no, know, no guys are driving the ball and and, and leaving the ground um, and throwing it. You know they're driving the ball to to make a play, to jump stop, to pivot, and the spacing is incredible. Coach, talk about that philosophy and getting the guys to move the ball so well. Yeah, I'm glad you think all that stuff we're doing well because I don't. <laughs> um, I, I that's something that we we talk spacing probably more than anything in our system, and, and you know, for us, we don't have a true quote unquote five man. Like our our five man is six foot five, and they're all really skilled. And, and what we try to do is just put players in position to make plays. So we're we're not going to have someone that's posting up the entire game because what that'll do is it'll clog the paint area where it's hard for guys, you know, to get to the rim. 
and, and score at the rim. Because again, it goes back to recruit. We want to recruit guys that can do everything. They can beat guys at the rim. And so when we run our five out motion offense, we just want everything in our arsenal. So, you know, we don't script our offense. None of it's, you know, pass to the right and go screen away to the left. Nothing is scripted, but we spend a lot of time talking about spacing and, you know, cutting and every type of cuts from back doors, the curl cuts, to dribble back cuts, um, to replacement, everything that you can think of, we talk about in, in terms of, of cutting and then, um, screening. I think screening is something that we we're doing a really poor job of right now. And we're famous for just interchanging, not really setting screens, just interchanging with guys. And that's really easy to guard, but if you set good screens, the defense will get confused eventually. And so those are the type of things that we're dealing with right now is, you know, we got a lot of guys. And, and when you talk about movement, like guys will just go out there and start running around like crazy for no rhyme or reason. So it's, it's balancing all that and making sure you're moving at the right time or you're cutting in the right area or you're setting a screen on the right guy. That's what we're kind of dealing with right now. And this is something we just don't talk about for a day or a week. We talk about it every day of the season. So, you know, again, I watch this practice sometimes and think, you know, our offense is really bad. But, you know, at the end of the day, we typically lead the country and scoring so i guess maybe we're doing something (laughs) yeah it's nice to you know you're saying the defense gets confused initially i'm seeing a lot of confused defenses out there when i'm watching your clips and uh and and not 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 always initially um so so defensively you talked about some of your guys and how they press you you you're top three in the country in steals and you've been consistently at the top in that category make or miss uh you're man to man and, and you're pressing full court, sometimes that, st- that starts like you're sending four or five guys to the offensive glass, you know, and that's defensively. You now it's kind of like the anti-analytics approach. So, so mm-hmm. offensively, you know, if you want to follow the analytics and the numbers and all that, you, get, you guys take a lot of threes, you get great shots, off ball movement with spacing. You know, defensively, it's like the anti-approach. So how's, how does defense work for you guys philosophically? Yeah, so it's – and I'm not an analytic yeah. guy. I actually don't read any of that stuff. But, you know, going back to the offensive rebounding, I'd like to send five guys. And I know it, it sounds crazy at times, but we our biggest guy last year was 6'5", and I think we were in the top ten in offensive rebounding. You, you can't be, like, a skilled rebounder. You either want to rebound or you don't. Like, you, there's no skill in rebounding. You just got to try. You got to try really hard to get rebounds. Um, but going back to the defensive side of things um, – it's hard. It's really hard to play this way. And, and, you know, we always talked about when I was the assistant coach, every recruit says they want to do it until it's actually time to do it because they don't realize how hard it is. And and you're essentially exposing the basket um, and face guarding, you know, four other players on the floor. And so that's hard, especially for, for high school kids coming to college they have no idea what they're doing and it takes, you know, three to four months to do it. Um, but we always talk about, you know, it's it's you versus him. It's you versus your opponent. Make it a one-on-one game. And so we try to deny the first pass. And then if they're able to get the ball in bounds, which the number one, you know, thing we're trying to do is don't let them get the ball in bounds. And then number two, let's run a real trap, like a real trap where you're smothering the ball and you're trying to get a deflection or a tip. And if they are able to get it out of that, you know, trap, 
we're going to chase you from behind at, at, at 100% capacity. We're not, you know, going to jog. We're not going to run at 85%. We're going to run and chase you. So it'll actually be a numerical disadvantage for the first three or four seconds maybe to a numerical advantage in our favor, um, you know, once the team crosses half if we are, if we don't have numbers like defensively, let's say we're on a three on two or a two on one, that doesn't concern me much because if we have the guys doing their job from behind and running at full speed, that advantage is only going to last for maybe a half of a second. Okay, right, that makes sense. You know, you want to minimize that, minimize that advantage. So, right, yeah, I mean, this is all, this is all so incredible. You know, the success you've had, you know you know, for, for your first three years and then going back under, under coach Crutchfield. I mean, so we talk offense, we talk defense style of play. Let's get into player development because I want to, I want to just let the listeners know, you know, in three years, you've got 10 all mountain East conference selections, right? So you're averaging two or three guys a year, um, you know, hitting the, the mountain East conference, you know, first team, second team. And you've had, you know, the, 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 the freshman of the year twice in three years. So where does, you know, we talked about fit in the recruiting process and that's a big part of it, but where does player development, individual development, where does that fit for your formula? It's huge. It, it's extremely important. And that's, it, it kind of goes back to, you know, once we get guys in here, let's not, you know, put a leash on them and, you know, cripple them and saying, you're only allowed to do this or, you're only allowed to do that, and, and we don't pigeonhole guys into so-called positions. Everybody's got to be able to do a little bit of everything. And, and, like, for our workouts in the fall, like, we don't have typical workouts. Like, you get four hours in the fall. Our workouts are let's have an open gym to 100, and by doing it by pressing and, you know, trapping and chasing. If you do a workout to 100 the right way, and your guys are going to be in – tip-top shape you can go out and run sprints and run around the track or do whatever you want to but if you play the right way to 100 you're going to be in way better shape um than going out there and, and you know running whatever kind of sprint or suicide you want to do it allows guys to play you know playing every day to 100 it allows it puts guys in positions where they're forced to make a play or you know and, and we've been filming a lot of these so we can go back and watch and say no you should have done this you should have done that so it, it puts guys in positions to, to make plays um, but it also goes back to recruit guys that can do a little bit of everything. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, player development is so important and, and this is the cool part that we're talking about. You know, everyone does it a different way and, and, you know, the, the concepts typically are the same, but how we get to the end point, uh, how you get to the end point of being a top team at division two, you know, it's all different and that's super, super cool, super enlightening, you know, for a junkie like myself and some of the listeners and, and, you know, that makes, that makes this podcast worthwhile, especially when you look at, you know, what you have coming in this year. We were talking before the episode started, you have no seniors from last year's team. Uh, you finished 27 and four, you won the, the MEC tournament you won the regular season. You have the reigning uh, Mountain East player of the year in Dalton Boland. Um, he had 19 points per game, nine rebounds per game. You know, he really uh, first three seasons, he progressed from, freshman of the year then he goes back to back uh first team on mount all mountain east and, and you know this past season's player of the year you have everybody back you have the reigning you know uh, mountain east conference player of the year 
and he's got like an old man's game. I watched a bunch of clips on uh, on him, and he's great. He's probably, you know, he uses his body really, really well. He's really high skilled. You know, he's strong with the ball, skilled with the ball. No one takes it from him. He uses his body to get by and finish. He's not like a super, super athlete, but out of necessity, he just uses his skill and his body so well to get to the rim. And I got to be honest, he's probably the best shot preparation player I've seen in terms like when he's in the perimeter coach, Dalton Bolin's his, his butt is down, his hands are up and like he is ready to shoot way before he touches the ball. It's incredible. You know, so talk about, you know, talk about Dalton's game because he's just, he doesn't pass the eye test. You and I both know he doesn't pass the eye test, but, but damn, he can play. Yeah. He, he, and this is a guy that no division three schools were even on at high school and he comes here and he, he red shirts a year and just, and I'm not kidding when I say this and, and everyone that's around West Liberty will tell you this. He is the hardest working kid I've ever seen. And he just, he's in here at six in the morning. He'll shoot at lunchtime. He'll be the first guy in the gym before practice. He won't leave till the lights are turned out. And on top of that, like he's already got his undergrad and he's already got his master's degree. Just, he's never got to be in his life. He's like the all American boy and, and he does it the right way. He is relentless in the, the part of his game I'm most proud about is his ability to get rebounds now and not just get rebounds. It's ability to get tough rebounds. And he's only six, three, six foot four, whatever. But, you know, like you said earlier, he averaged what nine rebounds a game. And he just goes in there with, with the attitude of I'm coming out of this somehow, some way. And he's one of those guys that like, I don't know if you've ever felt like this when you play a game, when you're playing a game, there's a chance you might get hurt if you play with them. Like, <laughs> If I play with Dalton, I think there's a chance I'm going to get hurt when I'm playing, like a bloody nose or I'm going to do something. He's just one of those guys, and he brings it every day to practice. Like there's never a day where I'm thinking Dalton didn't try hard or Dalton was lacking energy. The dude brings it every single day, and he's been a a serious joy for me to coach, and I'm really excited to coach him here his senior year. Yeah, I mean, you know. Very few guys do one without the other, you know, high, high performer academically, typically high performer on the court and, and reading his bio. I mean, the, the, you can tell he's got a terrific work ethic. And then you put him next to uh, a junior, Will Yoakum. Will made 63 three-pointers. He shot 50% from behind the arc. So it's one thing to make 63 threes. It's another thing to make to shoot fifty percent from three. Like I can walk out right now and shoot fifty percent from three, unguarded, no defense, <laughs> no running, you know. Uh, but that dude did both. He averaged eighteen a game. He was last year's freshman of the year, uh, you know, um, eighteen nineteen. Um, so on, on synergy, like I'm watching him, and first of all, he's a really sneaky athlete. Like he is, he is yes. great around the rim. He's great at contorting his body. And, and taking contact and finishing through contact. He has a, you know, he has that transition dunk in the, in the Mountain East championship game against Charleston. And it's like the sea just parts for him. As soon as he got, you know, as soon as he got a little, a little bit of a runway, like, he just came right down the paint and, 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 and flushed it. Uh, but he can also shoot it. Like his skill set, he is always ready to shoot. You know, he handles it really well. It goes both ways, you know, Talk about talk about Will because he looks like a guy that's developed over over some time, has some talent to begin with, but he's really developed over time. 
Yeah, totally agree. And he's another guy that we redshirted um, when he got here. And he, and he could have definitely have been in the lineup when he redshirted. But I, I, I kind of saw something. I think this kid can be, you know, really, really good. And there's really nothing Will lacks in basketball. Like, he, he's really good at, at, at everything. And, you know, he's – but the, the good part about Will is he's still getting better. Like, he, he, he's had – the fall he's had this year has just been incredible. He, he's a really high-level Division II player, um, and he's another guy that works just extremely hard, and he brings it every day to practice. Like, it, it's funny when him and Dalton, if they're on, like, different teams, to watch them get, go at each other, it's like, let's just take the other eight guys off the floor, let them play one-on-one, <laughs> and let's see who wins. Because it, they're, they're, it's, it's really fun to watch those two guys battle and, um, again, some people say, you know, other coaches around the league that I have a good relationship with say, Will Yoakum's your best player. Whereas Dalton Bolin got MEC player of the year. That's a good problem. Oh, absolutely. That's a really good problem to have if you're a head coach. If, you know, half the coaches think Will's your best player and the other half think Dalton's your best player. And then on top of that, we've got coaches saying that Pat Robinson, who's, who's a, junior guard this year that we got from Holy family transfer from Holy family is our best player. So it's kind of cool when you get three different answers. Once, when, when you ask someone, who do you think our best player is, you can get three different answers. Yeah, absolutely. And Robinson, you know, lefty guard can really shoot it. Uh, He's got, he's got great explosiveness and and we're talking about him go into kind of your projection for the year. How does your roster look around those three players? Um, You know, with everybody back and, and what do you, even though we're in a very difficult circumstance, you know, how do you, how do you see your team this year? I really like my team. They're, they're, they're fun to be around. They practice hard and obviously things can happen. We could lose every game this year, but I also feel like our guys understand, you know, we could be pretty good as well. And that's what's so fun is because we had guys that have had success last year and won championships in the years past, but they want more. They want more out of it. And I think, some of them have a little bit of a sour taste in their mouth the way things ended last year. They felt like, man, we still got some some gas left in the tank here. Um, so it's really fun to see this group, you know, play every day and come together. And we've got other pieces too. We've got a, a lot of other pieces. Luke Dyer is a kid that started for four years for us, and he was number one in the country in assist-to-turnover ratio last year. And, you know, when Luke first got here, I, people were saying he ain't ever going to play. Why, why is he here? He's only started for four years since then, and he is just – he's the reason we win games. He, he's our rock, and he's the one that brings brings us together. And then we also have Marlon Moore, who, who's a senior, who's played in a lot of big games, and Malik McKinney, who, who's our you know best on-ball defender and best overall defender in general. And then I'm really looking forward to Bryce Butler this year, who's probably, if you were to say rank our guys in the fall, I'd say he's number – one or two or three, I'd put him up there in the top three. He's just had a great fall, and then really looking forward to Owen Hazelbaker, you know, contributing more for us this season. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, we've had about uh, forty-five minutes now, and and being the preseason, I don't want to take too much more time. So, obviously, you're really excited about your team, and you've had a lot of success uh, as an assistant now as a as a head coach. But what is it? And I ask this question to everyone, but what is it about your program at West Liberty, the men's basketball program at West Liberty, that makes it so special? And you're an alumnus, you know, you've got a lot of experience there. 
what makes that program so special, Coach? You know, I think from a, from a basketball standpoint is that people really care. Like, you, you can go to, you know, some Division two schools and they don't care if you win or lose. Like, just as long as you, you're in the game here, they care. And, and, and they're going to come support you. And they're going to come on the road and support you. It, it, it's a lot of fun because I, I really do feel like we have some of the best fans in Division two. And, you know, just the way that people care for the players here. For instance, we have a, a family that uh, cooks for our guys on Saturdays. Like, they, they'll put a spread out and they'll have bacon and eggs and sausage. And they just – they really like our guys. And it's fun to be a part of that. You know, it's a little bit stressful because they expect you to win <laughs> and they expect you to score a lot of points. But that's a good – that's a good pressure. That's good pressure to have. And the people here at West Liberty make this place really special. That's awesome. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. There's so many ways to do it and so many people that go into it, especially when you're at a, a top 10 program. And, and, you know, so, Coach, you know, I want, to, I want to take a minute and thank you, but also acknowledge you, you know, first of all, for making the transition uh, from assistant coach to head coach. Not an easy task when you follow someone like Coach Crutchfield. I want to acknowledge all the positive impact you've had on your guys. We're talking about fielding phone calls from – uh, Seeker Bonifa, you know, three years removed from the program or more. And uh, that's very indicative of the kind of relationships that you're building w- with your team. And uh, there's good players, there's good coaches all over the country at the Division II level. And, and West Liberty is just one of them. But, uh, but you're doing an outstanding job, Ben, and I want to acknowledge you for that. So, so thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me on here, Chris. Really enjoyed it. Awesome, Ben. I appreciate everything. And, uh, We'll be catching up soon once you get into the season. That sounds good. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Bonafide Basketball Podcast. Be sure to like, subscribe, and download this episode and future episodes of the Bonafide Basketball Podcast. You can follow the Bonafide Basketball Podcast on Twitter or Instagram at bonafide underscore BB underscore pod. You can listen to the Bonafide Basketball Podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast episode. This is the NCAA Division II Men's Basketball Insight, Commentary, and Analysis you're not getting on ESPN.